Hello and welcome back to QC Uncut, your source for uncut, unedited, uncensored podcasting here in the Quad Cities. We're the number one rated podcast in the Quad Cities. Thanks to you listening in and thanks a lot for tuning in. I'm Sean Leary, your host. And today my guest is Neil Anderson. He is the state senator from the 36th district here in Illinois, which of course covers the Quad Cities because otherwise, why would I have him on their show considering it's a Quad Cities podcast? Anyway, a um, little bit about Neil's background. Um, he is a firefighter and paramedic in Moline has been since 2016 um, ran uh, in tw- in 2014 for state senate and defeated Mike Jacobs and has been there ever since. Uh, just run re- one re-election in 2018, and um, we're going to talk to him about some of the stuff that he's done while well in senate, some of his background, and I also solicited some questions from you on our Facebook page, and I'm going to ask him about some of the topics that you brought up. So again, thank you very much, Neil Anderson. Yeah, nope. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. One little correction: I've been a fireman since 06. 06. Did, what did I say? Sixteen. You said so. Ah, yeah, I know. You, I know it's 06 because I did. I did do my research yeah, yeah. on you, and that wouldn't make sense if it was sixteen. So, um, but anyway, um, you also went to Nebraska, mm-hmm. which you know. I, I graduated from University of Southern California, so I have no skin in the game in terms of Iowa and Nebraska, so I'm not going to give you a guff about that, uh, Neil. What brought you to the Quad Cities? Uh, so I was actually born in northeast Nebraska, and my parents moved here when I was about two years old. Um, funny enough, my dad moved here because he was going to go to Palmer, mm-hmm. and I went to the University of Nebraska, and I was a pre-med, pre-chiropractic major, and I moved back here because I was going to go to Palmer. And uh, much like my dad, I found a different path and ended up becoming a, a fireman. Cool. What is it about uh, being a fireman and paramedic that drew you into it, and what do you enjoy most about it, and what's most difficult about it? Well, funny enough, the thing that drew me into it is kind of the exact opposite of what drew me into politics. Um, you know, I've always um, really enjoyed helping people in in just about every aspect and i think being a fireman is the purest form of helping somebody and unlike politics being a fireman um there's no politics involved right when you go to an emergency scene it doesn't matter what race creed color financial aspect somebody has you're just there to help Mm -hmm. and that's what i i love about the job now, what made you decide to make a run for public office? You first ran in 2012, and you lost um, to uh, for sure in 2012, um, then came back in 2014. What made you decide to get into politics in the first place? What was it like losing the first time out? And then what did you learn from that to help you come back and win two years later? Um, well, kind of a, a long story summed up. I um, I had never in my life thought about running for office. I had always stayed up on politics and you know been involved in some way, shape, or fashion, um, but never thought about running for office. And um, when I first, why not? Um, it, it was just something that I never thought about. Um, much like being a fireman, I, ne- I was never one of them kids that grew up uh, wanting to be a, a police officer or a fireman. It just kind of happened, and it was the same with politics. Um, my son was pretty young at the time, and uh, my wife and myself and my son were coming home from church one day, and the something just hit me, and I told my wife, I said, I need to serve. Um, what was it? I mean, was it something specific? Was it something vague? Did you see something out the window? Was it, you know, things, something you'd been thinking about and just clicked or what? 
Yeah, it was it, it was just something that um, I think just kind of all came together at, um, at at that moment in time. A lot of my family had served in the military, and I didn't. Um, you know, I went from high school to college, played ball, and got married my senior year in college. And for whatever reason, it just came together, and my immediate thought was military service. So I talked to my wife and um, went and talked to recruiters from, um, you know, the Army and Navy and the Marine Corps. Not the Air Force, Neil? Uh, I didn't I didn't <laughs> talk to the Air Force. Uh, not that I don't uh, appreciate the Air Force. I don't think they do a good job. It's just uh, that wasn't the route I was going. And um, I was actually had all the paperwork filled out to enlist in the Marine Corps. And um, like a good husband, I went home and discussed it with my wife. And she was behind me. She said, if you think that's something you need to do, then I'm behind you. Um, But why don't you think about serving in a different way? And that kind of opened up a new conversation. And um, then we kind of fell into running for office in some way, shape, or form. I I, I don't know how we came to that. Um, But, yeah, that's how I kind of got involved and got started. And... um, Former uh, Congressman Bobby Schilling, I work with his brother-in-law at the fire department, and that's I kind of went to him, and I was like, what do I need to do? And um, he kind of helped me get, get started. And, you know, running that first time against For Sure, it was one of them things that I, I gave it my all, but I kind of knew what the outcome was going to be um, because, I mean, let's face it, Pat For Sure um, – did a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't agree with all of his policies, but Pat uh, has always been a good guy, and I think he did, for the most part, what was right for the district um, most of the time, not all the time. Um, and funny enough, when I got elected into the Senate, um, one of the best friends I made down there was Representative Vershore. We became very close over the years. Um, so it's kind of funny how it all works out. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that is, you know, you thought he was doing a really good job and yet you ran against him, which to me is kind of the strange, you know, quality of the, the, the electoral system. And that, while I understand certainly we have to have elections and everything else, it's got to be difficult to run against somebody who is very popular and also you agree with on a lot of things. Yeah, and it it, it was tough in that aspect, um, but... It's it's one of those things like um, I wasn't when I ran against Pat the first time. Um, again, I it wasn't that I disagreed with him on a, a ton of issues like we see now in a lot of politics. Right. It's, it seems like nobody on the other side can do the right thing, <laughs> right. and that's that's simply not the case. Um, but it was one of them things like can I do better? And I thought I could do a better job. And that's why ultimately I decided to run. Um, so, yeah. So what was the campaign like two years later? So what made you coming out of that? Did you know you're going to run again or were you disappointed? You said you went into it. you thinking, like you said, eh, I kind of figured I was going to lose. I would be happy if I won, but I knew what I was going up against. Coming out of that, did you kind of use that as fuel, or was that was there a pause where you had to stop and think about it and ask yourself, do I really want to do this again? Or what, what was your mindset in terms of coming out of that 2012? 
Yeah, so when we finished with that election, again, it was... It was a pretty large margin. And so if you were... It was like 65-35 against you. So it's not like you're like, hey, I almost got it. So that had to be a little discouraging. Yeah, it was was a really large margin. And um, I made, you know, some for lack of a better term, some rookie mistakes along the way. Um, I didn't get a whole lot of, you know, help as far as staff and, you know, organization in the campaign. Um, And after that election, you know, my wife that night was like, we're never doing that again. (laughs) And and I was like, yeah, I I tend to agree that, you know, it was as... Famous um, last words. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as much as it that election wasn't an election that was fueled by a lot of money there wasn't you know a bunch of tv ads um it was still tough on the family and uh how so well i mean trying to balance um working 24 hours at the fire department Mm -hmm. uh and then you get home for those two days and you know, my mindset whenever I've done something from politics to football to work, it's you, you my dad used to always say, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Sure. Yeah. So you're either going to do it 100% or don't do it at all. So it was really hard to strike a balance with um, getting off duty and then, you know, if I could have, I would have knocked doors from the moment I got off until I couldn't do it anymore every day. And um, so it was tough in that aspect, trying to strike that balance between work, campaigning, and and family. Um, So that's what made it really tough. How old were your kids at the time? Because I know that makes it even more difficult. I mean, this is back in 2012. So you're going around and spending all this time campaigning. And I imagine if your kids were little, your wife was especially not pleased about it. Yeah, so my son was uh, six six turning seven that year um and yeah it was it was just it was tough difficult yeah um but then um you know my wife and i both agreed that's it we're gonna find another you know way to to help the community and uh about six months after the election maybe eight months um senate republicans came to me and they're like we want you to run against mike jacobs and um, I told him no. And uh, that conversation was over, and um, I didn't even think twice about it. I didn't, it. Funny enough, I tell my wife everything, but I didn't even tell her that they called. It was just like they called. I said no. That was it. What was the rationale for picking you as a potential candidate against Mike? Um, I don't know what the rationale was. I think a lot of it had to do with um, my work ethic. Um, you know, them being able to help, you know, being in, in fast forward a little bit, being in leadership now in the Senate, um, I, outside of session, I do a lot of candidate recruitment around the state and stuff like that. And, um, I think now seeing it from the position I'm in to where they were when they recruited me, it was, you know, we can do a lot with a candidate that, has a solid set of morals and is willing to work. If you don't find somebody that's not that's not willing to do the work, um, they can have the greatest resume in the world, but if they're not willing to do the footwork, 
it's just they can't win. So I think that was the big thing why they they recruited me. They saw my work ethic um, in the election before. So about two weeks after I had said no, um, they called me again. And uh, they're like, hey, we know you said no, but um, would you just sit down with us? Just sit down and talk. And I said, no. (laughs) And... (laughs) And so that again, that was it. And that time, I I came home and I was like, "You'll never guess who called me today, honey." And she, she's like, "Who?" And I was like, "Senate Republicans want me to against want to run against uh, me to run against Mike Jacobs." And she's like, "Well, what'd you say?" And I was like, "I told him no." And she's like, "Oh, kind of disappointed." And I go, "What?" And she goes, "Well, as much as it sucked, you're good at it, and I think you're the right person to do it." And I said, "Well, here's the deal." I told them no first time they called. I told them no this time. I said, we'll pray about it, and if they call again, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. So in my head, I'm thinking, there's no way they're going to call again. I'm good. Mm-hmm. And then uh, God has a sense of humor, and they called me about three days after that, and they're like, don't hang up. Don't <laughs> hang up. We just Listen, can you just sit down with us, and if you're not willing to do it, can you help us try to find somebody? And I was like, I'll do it. And they're like, Really? And I was like, yeah. So that's kind of how it all got started again. And that was that was a tough election. I mean, that you know, Mike was a legacy candidate. I mean, um, you know, he'd been around, and and you know, that seat had been Democratic for quite some time. What was it like going into that election and <clears throat> looking at those odds? And how did how did you win? To looking back on it, how do you think you pulled that off? Um. It, we we outworked them. That's that's all it came down to. Um, we had a great message. We had um, after a little while um, getting our message out. We had people start to invest in the race, and you know a group of people that actually thought we could win. And then it just it snowballed from there, and we were able to carry it over the finish line. Now you just won against Greg Johnson mm-hmm. in 2018. Um, looked up. That race, you had $1,886,699 raised for that race. It's almost $2 million for race here in Illinois. What do you feel about campaign finance reform, and do you think that elections should be publicly funded so that candidates don't have to raise that outrageous amount of money? Yeah, well, it, it is a lot of money, and funny enough, um, I mean, being a public servant, don't you look at that and go, "Jesus, two million dollars could have gone to help a lot of people," rather than you know funding a yeah. a campaign? Yeah, and I was going to say, funny enough, that's about half of what we spent against Jacobs. Um, so it was a lot less this last time around. But you know, I, that is one issue in particular I really do struggle with. Um, I think I think I would like it more if there was a like a hard cap like everybody gets right a hundred thousand dollars and that's what you get but at the same time you know if I'm um, if I'm a businessman and I really buy into Sean Leary's idea of change and what we want to do to change the state why shouldn't I be free to give you as much money as I want to give you to help get you elected it's 
again, I'm not saying I agree with that, but I don't disagree with it. It's just a really tough topic of, especially when you're talking about, you know, freedom of people to do what they want with their own money. Well, doesn't that go against the core principles of what America was founded on, which was getting away from an oligarchy in Britain? It it does in a sense, but at the same time, why should anybody tell me what I can and can't do with my money? Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, again, let's face it, we've had campaign finance reform multiple times through the years. And there's always a loophole that somebody's going to find, mm-hmm. and it's frustrating. So, I, I guess to sum up and to answer your question, I, I honestly, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I'm on both sides of that issue, and I'm not saying that to be political. Um, <laughs> that's not a political answer at all, Neil, is it? No, it, it well, it is, but it, it's not intended to be. It's just a, it's a tough issue. Um, I, I, I kind of am on both sides of it, and I don't know the best way to, to fix it. Is that one of the, I mean, I'm not in political office, mm-hmm. and so my perspective is much different in terms of that. Sure. Was your perspective different on that before you were in political office? Were you more on the side of, we need campaign finance reform, mm-hmm. we need to have some sort of way in which it, the, the playing field can be level, um, but now that you're inside of it, and you're seeing, well, this is how things work. Is it more difficult to make that call? Um, no, I, I don't think I've ever... Um, I think I've always struggled with both sides of that issue. And now that I'm in office, I, I see probably the darker side of uh, money in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, how so? Well, I mean, I, you see people out there that literally are are making votes just to make sure they get that funding oh, yeah. from that group. And that's, um, that's... Have you seen lobbyists or groups literally hand legislation to... And you don't have to mention names. Have you seen them hand legislation to legislators saying, here you go, make sure that's gets passed? Uh, no, no, I haven't seen that. And I think... Um, and I don't know what goes on in D.C. as far as that. You hear a lot of horror stories. Right. Um, but I can tell you, like, you know, people have said, you know, are there people that actually, like, give people money for a vote? No, it's not. No, it's not that overt. No, nobody's getting, like, you know, a, a check written out to them for, you know, $10,000 to make a vote, and they're pocketing that money. It's all goes into their... You know they're getting, um, they're getting money for a vote um, to their campaign. It's not it's it's not going to them personally. Um, that doesn't make it any better um, by any means. But I think there's this um, there's this idea that there's just a bunch of politicians that are you know getting handed these checks and going into their personal bank accounts. And again, that may be in, in D.C., um, definitely not, not in the state of Illinois. So um, what, uh, comparing and contrasting the two elections, um, 2014, 2018, <clears throat> how were they similar? How were they different? How were you as a candidate and as a person different in each instance and what did you carry with you that was a through line that was similar um well i think uh 
personally, the second time it was um, it was easier from a policy standpoint because I had um, you know some institutional knowledge, for the lack of a better term, um, kind of knew how things worked. Um, but it was a lot harder the second time, kind of for the same reasons. And um, it, um, it was easier, though, to go talk to voters the second time around because the first time around, you know, I, I branded myself as, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative, um, pro-life, pro-gun, but I'm also pro-labor. And you had a lot of the labor guys being like, you can't, that's not true. You can't be that way. And then after getting in and serving four years, then I could go out and say, you know, I'm th those three things. Mm -hmm. And now I have a, a voting record to show that that's exactly what I did. And so it was a lot easier to go, um, especially to organize labor and say, I did exactly what I said I was going to do. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, you did. So now that brings up an excellent point. And one of my biggest issues with politics in the current pol political situation, we talked about this before we started recording about the fact that I don't belong to a political party. I don't believe there should be political parties. I think that when you have political parties, it, it just encourages tribalism and that type of mentality. Well, if you're, if you're this, then you can't be this. Mm -hmm. And human beings are very rarely that cut and dried. Mm -hmm. I mean, people carry a lot of different belief systems and they you know are behind a lot of different things. Yeah. And some may fall upon the conservative spectrum. Some may be on the liberal some may be most i would argue most are kind of in the middle yeah you know um on a, and even within different issues yeah you know it's not like everybody on the gun issue is everybody should have every gun they want to and bazookas should be available at walmart right and then on the other side it, it's cut and dried and there should be no guns whatsoever and everything should be confiscated yeah. most people are in the middle yeah Polls have shown most people are kind of like handguns, hunting rifles, okay. I think most people have a, an issue more with the, you know, machine gun type of, you know, automatic stuff, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, far more, you know, of a reasonable platform and, and, and position than either side, I think. Um, what's it like dealing with that type of, I mean, you, even, you said it yourself. Well, they said I wasn't going to do this, and I went ahead and did it. I looked at your scorecard from the American Conservative Union, which you are a Republican and you identify as a conservative. And yet your scorecard from the American Conservative Union, it was 72% um, in 2016, which is certainly in the positive towards that. But it's not, you know, a 90% or 100%. It was 50%, 50% 50 in 2017. And your overall score from the American Conservative Union is 63%, which would be barely passing on the grade scale, Neil. Right. <laughs> but that's probably where anybody should be. If you're any politician, you should probably get scores in the 60s from the Conservative Union and the Liberal Union. You should be a mix of different belief systems and kind of following the different things that that make up the uh, the belief system of your constituency, and um, I think that around here, particularly here in the Midwest, we are more of a mix of conservative and liberal beliefs. What um, has that been like for you? 
dealing with both sides of the aisle. It's, I tell you what, the the scorecards like you just brought up, the conservative union, um, is no different than the, the AFL-CIO. Um, they, um, it's frustrating because they will pick and choose what bills to score based on, you know, Republican support or Democrat support. And that's really frustrating. Um, all those groups, like the ones you mentioned, are no different. They're all special interests, and they all have an end goal. Mm-hmm. And my end goal has always been what is best for the constituents in my district, which is why over the last five years I have the most independent voting record in the state of Illinois, something I'm very, very proud of. Um, you know, their scorecard is a perfect example of what's wrong in politics, just like the AFL-CIO's scorecard is exactly what's wrong in politics. AFL-CIO, um, I think my score with them was like a 57 or something like that. But if you look at what they scored um, outside of labor issues like um, right to work, um, collective bargaining, all the things that every union member would agree with are important to them. They also scored things like the tax increase. That has nothing to do with organized labor. But they Mm -hmm. scored it because all the Democrats voted for that and no Republicans voted for that. So they're biased just like a conservative union is biased. Mm -hmm. And so they pick and choose these bills to score um, because if you're not lining up with what they say is right, then we're going to score you poorly. And that's unfortunate. Um, And I think a lot of people um, put way too much um, way too much um, what's the word I'm looking for? Emphasis? Way too much emphasis on those things like that on special interest groups. Um, Do a little research. Find out what's important to you and look how I voted. Um, And much like we were talking earlier, there's votes that I've taken that I don't even personally agree with, but it's I wasn't elected to vote what I think. I was voted to do what's best for the constituents of my district. What's it like dealing with um, people from different sides of the aisle and dealing with people within your own party that wish that you were a little bit more hardline conservative? Well, it's kind of funny because in Springfield, um, within the legislative body, everybody understands why you do certain, you take certain votes. Mm -hmm. And uh, (coughs) even, I mean, even with my leadership in the Senate Republican Caucus, um, you know, they know that, you know, most labor issues, um, if it's a a good bill, um, um, I'm going to vote with them and against my caucus usually. And they understand that because my district is the most heavily organized labor district per capita in the country. So it, if I don't vote that way, that would be stupid on my behalf because right. I'm representing a very large group of organized labor members. Right. Um, but I, everybody, and that's a, I think that's another big misconception that's that it, being in it now I find kind of funny because um, one of my best friends on the other side of the aisle is, is Senator Tony Munoz, um, and 
he drafted a piece of legislation. I, I forget exactly what the details were now. This is a few years ago. Um, but it had to do with Second Amendment. And we were literally shouting across the floor at each other during debate. And there was one logical question that I brought up that he couldn't answer. Um, Which is what? I can't remember exactly what it was in reference to, but it was, it had to do with, it, it was one of the red flag laws. And, um, and also within it, it was uh, making um, handguns couldn't be purchased by anyone under the age of 21. And I brought up, I, I brought up myself. I went to college at 18. And you could be a cop. You can fight for your country at 18. And when I went to college, I was, I was 18, and I, you know, I had a, a pistol that I had with me and. Um, I said, so somebody that's 18, they can they can get a mortgage, right. they can make all these decisions, yeah. but they can't defend themselves in their own home. So what do you say when um, what's going to happen to the person that doesn't abide by this law? Somebody breaks into their house and they shoot them. Are you going to put that person in prison? And he won't answer that question. Um, because anybody, logically, if you... If I'm 18 or 43, and you break into my house and you try to harm me and I sure. shoot you, that shouldn't be on me. No, it shouldn't. Self defense. So he wouldn't answer that question. But again, I guess the point of the whole story was um, it was really heated. And if you listened to it or watched it on online, you would think that me and Tony hated each other. But I, I distinctly remember that night we went out to dinner together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just it's he has his beliefs on a certain issue. I have my certain beliefs, and that debate um, during session is important for constituents to hear because um, no matter what side of the issue you're on, uh, you need to hear both sides, and that's why I I, I really try to um, and I do it very often. People call my office, people email me about an issue that I'm passionate about, such as the Second Amendment. And I'll offer, I said, let's, you know, let's sit down and have coffee, and I want to answer your questions. Mm -hmm. We may not agree at the end of the conversations, but at least you'll understand why I am where I am, Mm -hmm. and I can understand why you are where you are. Sure. Um, And then if at the end we agree to disagree, that's fine, but at least we have an understanding. Um, Most people don't take me up on it, but there's been a few, and, you know, I get people walking away go, I never thought about it like that. And I've had people explain to me things, and I've, you know, same thing, I never thought about it that way. So um, that conversation is um, about any topic is something we need to have more of. That is one of the topics that I have here on the back that people wanted me to ask you about. So let's go. Let's get into it, because um, I, I get where you're coming from. Um, my dad and my stepmom are very liberal. They live in New York. My mom and my stepdad are very conservative, and they live in Chicago. And I was raised in that you know environment where I had one side that was very very conservative. Yeah. Fox News on all the time. Everything was, you know, um, and then I had the other where it was 
they're very liberal. When I grew up, um, I was more Republican. Um, I actually, I wrote, I remember being in college writing papers on Teddy Roosevelt and Dwight D. Eisenhower and being in the uh, college young Republicans, actually. And then the Republican Party started to kind of go off into, you know, areas where I thought that it was not prudent to go, they started going against what I felt were the core principles of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped being a Republican, became more of a Democrat. Um, Then the Democratic Party started doing the same thing and going too far over to the left. And so I found myself in no man's land where the Republican Party was way too far to the right. The Democratic Party, I felt, was getting way too far over to the left. And so... I just stopped being a part of any political party because I didn't feel like there was any that really represented where I was at my interests. Um, The Second Amendment is one of those very, very divisive issues where you have people who are absolutists on both sides. And I'm curious to see where you stand in regard to this because I'm I'm in the middle where I think everybody, I have no problem with hunting rifles and handguns. And I think most people feel the same way. You should be able to have a handgun to defend yourself. You should be able to have certainly have a hunting rifle. I mean, people go hunting all the time. There's this tradition in the in this country and, and how do you think people ate for a long time? There's no problem with that. Right. Um, I think that uh, you know people draw the line in terms of weapons that could be used to kill a large number of people and who's design and intent is to kill a large number of people. They're battlefield weapons. And while I certainly agree it's a mental health issue because as I've said before on this podcast and talking about this with the people, if we had a machine gun on this table or any reasonable people put a machine gun, two, three, four machine guns on the table, we're not going to pick them up and just start shooting randomly Mm -hmm. because we're both of stable mental condition. But if you have that machine gun right there in the middle uh, and it's loaded right in the middle of this entire restaurant here how confident are you that someone else who maybe isn't of the same stable mental condition isn't going to pick that thing up and start shooting and that is where the line becomes a little muddy and where people start to get a little concerned as to why these things are still legal yeah so there's, there's there's a lot to unpack there, Sean. Uh, so I think that you asked for it. You start talking about the Second Amendment, Neil. So no, no, no. you brought it up, and I, I'm like, okay, fine. Here we are. We're having coffee, and yeah. we're engaging. So go ahead. Yeah. No, and I'm happy to. There's just there's a lot to unpack there because I I think I, I think I'll start off here. I think there's a lot of misinformation um, out there about guns in general. Um, for instance, uh, automatic weapons. Automatic weapons have been banned in the United States since 1986. So, um, wait, though. Okay, weren't they? The, the ban was allowed to lapse by Bush, though, in 2005. Correct? No, that's you're talking about the assault weapons ban. Okay. Um, and and again, this is where the the, the misinformation comes in. And um, much like I can't tell you how many times I've had people call my office and they're like you need to ban AR-15s. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, they're assault weapons. Well, what's an assault weapon? It's, yeah, but that's getting into the semantics of this, though. Let's just put it this way. Do you think that there's any re- viable reason that 
and I understand like people want to have these guns and things of that nature but from a public safety standpoint a lot of people like to have lawn darts too but that got banned a lot of people want e-vape cigarettes that smell like cotton candy but now they're they're being banned yeah. um, is there really any reason to weigh people's desires to have a weapon other than a handgun or a hunting rifle versus the public safety and the thing that could, things that could happen if those weren't banned. So, yeah, so let's dig into this a little bit. So um, I'll use the AR-15 as an example because it's, you know, it's a hot, it's a hot topic right now. So an AR-15 is a semi-automatic rifle that fires one shot, per trigger pull, just like any pistol out there, just like any other hunting sure. rifle out there. Um, so why is the AR-15 being demonized? It's because it's in the news, and that's what that's the flavor of the month for you know the mass shooters right now. So not to get elementary, but why are we blaming the, the two? What's its capacity, though? Well, a capacity for an AR-15, you can have a 30-round magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, a Ruger Mini-14, you can have a 30-round magazine. It just it's one's wood and one's polymer. What's maximum capacity for a handgun? Uh, it depends on the handgun. Right. I mean, I, it's not 30. Oh, you can get yeah, yeah, you can get 40-round mags for for a handgun. Absolutely. Um, and I, I guess that's that's the thing, though, is is people don't realize people don't realize that you can get you know extended mags for a handgun people don't realize how if you practice a little bit how fast you can change mags mm-hmm. um, I, you can change a mag in an AR15 um, whether it's 10 rounds or you know 40 rounds in two seconds mm-hmm. uh, and be ready to fire again the issue is is an AR15 is not a weapon of war. AR-15 has never been used in the military, ever. Um, so why are we demonizing that particular rifle? Um, and I think a lot of it goes because of, you know, much like you said, um, you know, people think they're automatic rifles. People think um, that they're weapons of war, and they're simply not. Automatic weapons are not allowed in the United States. They haven't been since 1986. Um and there's just a lot of misconceptions out there. And the other thing, too, is we have to ask ourselves, what was the purpose of the Second Amendment? When they had muskets. Let's bring that up. Yeah, well, we can bring that right. up. But what was the purpose of the Second yeah. Amendment? What was it? The purpose of the Second Amendment was not to hunt. It was to keep the government in check. It was to protect yourself against tyranny. Mm-hmm. True. And going back to muskets, it doesn't mention muskets in the Second Amendment. Right. And in fact, um, I, all your listeners out there, I, I, I'll encourage them to Google the Puckle machine gun. Puckle machine gun was invented well before the Revolutionary War, mm-hmm. and it was an automatic weapon, right. uh, just like the Giordani rifle. Um, so the idea that the Second Amendment was written um, with just muskets is... Uh, not only misleading, it's blatantly false. So were there, were there machine guns back in 1776, or were there was was that rifle available? Was anything aside from a single shot musket available in 1776? 
Yeah. And I'm ignorant to this. So if there were, then you tell me what was available in terms of arms so that people can listen to this and they can do the research. But they will, so yep, yep. make sure you're on target. Um, the puckle machine. No pun intended. The puckle machine gun was invented about 35 years before the Revolutionary okay. War. Um, the Giordani rifle um, was actually, it's really interesting if you, if you read about that particular rifle. It was a repeating air rifle mm-hmm. um, that um, Lewis and Clark actually took with them um, on their travels. Mm-hmm. And if you read some of uh, their writings, was a big reason why uh, many of the Indian tribes left them alone. Because right. they were scared of it. Um, so this idea that there was there was only single shot flintlock sure. muskets is again not only misleading; it's blatantly false. Gotcha. Now that said, and I agree with you, it's when this was written. Um, we had just separated from England, mm-hmm. and so there was a distinct possibility and a high probability that they were going to come back to to claim us, and they did. I mean, there was you know. Yep. Um, there were, you know, ensuing wars that were over Britain attempting to reclaim the colonies. Yeah. Um, so there was a distinct possibility of that happening. Is that possibility? It's kind of like, you know, when you look at uh, the, the the Old Testament, and there's and there's so many religious books that talk about you can't eat pork. Sure. And you think, why did they have? Well, why did they care about them not eating pork? Well, you think about it. They were all written during a time when there was no refrigeration. They lived in a desert. People are eating pork, and eventually it becomes bad. And so they're trying to think, well, how do we get people to stop dying from, you know, eating bad pork? Well, tell them God says not to eat pork. And that makes perfect sense from a logical standpoint. The same way the Second Amendment makes perfect sense from a logical standpoint when you look at the context of the time. However, we're in a time now where... I don't see Britain coming back to try and reclaim the United States. And quite frankly, I don't see any other country. If a country is trying to attack us, we already have a well-relegated militia, a gigantic military machine to defend us. You know, Joe Blow, who's got an arsenal in his basement, is not going to have much of an impact if they get past our own military machine. And if you're looking at the argument of okay well what if the government tries to you know uh, becomes corrupt do you really think that people who are part of any sort of militia movement are going to stand much of a chance against the military might of the united states if we have to fight against our own military well um i would point you to what happened on the bundy ranch perfect example but they could have they they could have overtaken them please neil come on i point to you what happened in waco i mean could you do you not think that they that they could have taken with the people on the bundy ranch yes they could have but do you, but did they they did not no because Why? because it would have been a public relations disaster and they would have looked horrible had they gone in with guns blazing to take these people i would agree and a bunch of citizens arming themselves um took that situation um, to what it is now, and it, it was an instance where the government backed down, and then the government threw the case out of court because they were wrong. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the Second Amendment, of, of course, the U.S. military, um, if they wanted to, yes, it's not going to do anything. Right. But I would rather be armed than unarmed. Much like the citizens of Venezuela right now. They're literally being shot in the streets by their government. Why? 
because about 10 years ago, the government took their guns. And now they're being shot in the streets of Venezuela by their government. I, I, don't you think they got, if, even if they had their guns, don't you think the government would have more guns, though, and be able to do the exact same thing, albeit with some casualties on the other side? What did we do uh, in, in the Second World War? We, have you ever heard of the Liberator? Mm-hmm. The Liberator was mass-produced, stamp-printed guns cool. that we dropped over Europe. And it came in a little box, and it came with five rounds of ammunition. But again, this is this is a totally different context. No, though. it's not. It's, that was in the midst of a world war, though. What happened? Okay, but the, it was in the midst of a world war where the government had taken the citizens' right. guns. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. And so we gave them guns yes. to help liberate themselves. Hence the right. name, the Liberator. Right. So if they and don't, we've do, done that in South America a number of times too. Right. Over the years. And so, a government that took guns away, we're dropping them mass-produced, crap, stamped guns with five rounds of ammo. If that's not going to do anything, then then why did we do it? Because it works. Right, right. Right. In the midst of that context. In the midst of that context, and the context was of a government that disarmed people mm-hmm. and took them over. Right. Do you really think that we're in that context right now, though? Don't you see not. that? Of course not. Of course we're not. Of course we're not. Could we become... I don't know. But do you think it's worth taking that chance in terms of allowing people that are of dubious mental capacity to get their hands upon weapons like this and to go shoot up public places? I mean, what you have you're you're a father. Do you I mean, how do you feel sending your kids off to schools and sometimes after you see one of these shootings in the media and ask i mean honestly do you drop them off and is there some a part of yourself that goes god i just hope nothing you'd say a little prayer and you're like i just hope they're safe you know i mean how does that feel of course and and now that we're we're you know back to the the topic at hand in in today's time is the biggest problem that we have right now with guns is we need to enforce the laws that are there. Mm-hmm. The, the the shootings that happened in Florida, mm-hmm. um, there was 56 times. Don't quote me on that. It's no, it's 50, fine. No. 50, 50 sometimes uh-huh. that if the law were followed, he would have been arrested and had no opportunity to get a weapon. Right. Okay? But there was a failure and a breakdown of enforcement of current law. Sure. 50 sometimes, and we missed all 50 sometimes. So the answer now is to take guns away from law-abiding citizens and enact more laws when they can't already enforce laws that are there? That completely illogical. Right. So we have, every time you go purchase a gun, you do. There's a background check done, no matter what state you're in, even at gun shows. And I know that that's a topic of you know conversation yeah, yeah. with a lot of people. The gun show loophole is a red herring. It doesn't exist. It's ridiculous. Um, but you, no matter where you go, whether it's gun show or a gun shop, mm-hmm. you have to fill out a 4473 that goes through the um, FBI ATF background. You're either approved or you're not approved. I'll keep it in Illinois because um, that's the state we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, you not only have to do that, you have to present a FOID card. Mm-hmm. Um, FOID card and concealed carry holders are literally background checked every day 
of every week of every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that works is with the FOID system, excuse me, every time somebody is arrested in the state of Illinois, which we can assume is every day, right? Um, that person's name is back-checked with the FOID logs. And they do that to see if they do have a FOID card, they need to take it away. Or if, if they're convicted, they would need to take it away. So when that is done, every person in the FOID system is background checked. Mm-hmm. And that is checked with every name, with mental health facilities in the state. Mm-hmm. And if you're a concealed carry holder, it's the same thing. So myself, being a FOID card holder and a concealed carry holder, I am literally background checked twice every day, every day of the year. What, what more? What, what more do you want? What, well, then what is causing the, the issue? Why, is, why are there so many more mass shootings? And I understand that the media also covers them considerably more than they did in the past. Yeah. So and there are issues where the media does not cover certain things that, you know, that end up getting swept under the rug. So what, in your opinion, can be done to stop the proliferation of mass shootings that has taken place in America? Well, in the, it's particularly since we're in the state of Illinois, um, it needs to be, number one, we need to enforce current law and we need to do it better sure. because we're, we're not doing it how, how we need to. Um, secondly, what is the current law? Lay that out for people because people will be listening to this and going, okay, well, what exactly is the current law? Because that, again, the more specific you are, the better informed sure. people are. So, I mean, it depends on what aspect we're talking about, but I'll use the um, the incident in um, the suburb that just happened where the guy went into the office building. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't exactly remember what town it was in. But he should have never been able to purchase a gun. He right. did purchase a gun. Right. And the reason he was able to is because... Um, State police and the NIC system did not properly check with other states, um, and he had a felony in, I believe it was in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. If we would have done that, we would have never got a gun legally anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the other issue here is, um, and I've actually drafted a bill two years ago, and I haven't been able to get the bill called for a vote, which is very frustrating, but the other big issue with gun violence um, in America is that we have judges that will plea down and will give gun crimes a lesser penalty. Case in point, um, four years ago, mm-hmm. uh, there was a lady that was convicted of straw purchasing and for those listening that don't know what straw purchasing is it's basically a person that goes out buys a gun legally mm-hmm. and then sells it yep. illegally okay so this woman bought three guns legally and she sold them to known gang members illegally those guns were then used in crimes and she was convicted she the um Maximum penalty, I think, was like 35 or 40 years. She got six months probation. That's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. I mean, and that's one, something that I've, when I've had this, you know, debate with people before is, is there anything on the books? We're down here in downtown Rock Island at the awesome Theo's Java Club here. And um, within walking distance, 
is 2nd Avenue in downtown Rock Island, a dance club where, not that long ago, there was gun violence. Somebody brought a gun, and it was obviously targeted. They were trying to shoot. I don't know what the context of it was, but it was two people were shot at, and there was a guy and a girl. I don't know whether somebody's... There was a love triangle or something like that, but you know, looking at the story, it, it seemed as if it was very directed towards these two people. Somebody was out to get these two people. Now, that said, you're in a packed nightclub. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that you should get a free pass because you're a bad shot, and I don't mean that to be cavalier. I'm just saying, yeah. but you know, the fact of the matter is, I think somebody goes into a public place with a gun and they decide to use it they should be charged with attempted murder for every single person that is in that location because any one of those people could have been killed and if you start enforcing laws like that where you walk into a dance club down here doesn't matter if you're there you know for your ex-girlfriend and the guy who she's with or whatever which is i'm not excusing that in the least yep obviously that's completely wrong but there are 30 other people. You go into that court, you're suddenly charged with attempted murder of 32 people. Yeah. You're going to be going away for a long time. And, and maybe if then, you should. Yeah. And maybe if the laws were that strict in regard to these things, maybe if the straw laws were stricter where you had some sort of, you know, accelerator clause mm-hmm. where somebody who does buy guns for gang members gets charged for twice the number of crimes that any that are committed using using those weapons maybe people might think twice about breaking some of these laws so maybe we should have some harsher penalties out there absolutely and that's that was the point of my legislation that I wrote and basically what the legislation does is the legislative branch can't tell the judicial branch what to do and i understand that it's a separation of powers but what my bill does is it doesn't tell judges what to do but simply what it does is in the case of the straw purchaser it says if you want to plead on that deal to six months probation rather than 40 years in prison fine but you are going to have to write a public letter and explain to everybody why you did that we need to hold judges accountable. Mm-hmm. Activist judges playing down straw purchasing from 40 years to six months is the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, put that person in jail for 40 years. The person down here that shot into a crowd, thank God, didn't hit anybody, right. but would have put them in jail for a long time. Exactly. Make an example of people that are going to use guns in the wrong way that they are going to get punished. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about any sort of loosening? Obviously, there's you know been a little bit more loosening in terms of people being able to procure weapons of that nature. And like we mentioned before, you put any kind of weapon in here between you know two reasonable, logical, consenting adults, and they're not going to use it in a negative context. Somebody who unfortunately is, you know, not of the right mental capacity is going to do that. Um, What do you think is the solution in terms of that? In terms of making sure that people who have had mental health issues are not allowed to get weapons of this nature. And I know there are going to be people out there going to be like, well, that's discriminating against people who have mental health health issues. Well, you know what? We discriminate against grandpa when he gets to be 75 and he can't see the road anymore and he doesn't get his driver's license. It's the same damn thing. If you don't have the physical capacity, whether it's your mental 
um, mental ability or your physical ability to be able to handle something that could inflict harm upon the general society at large, then society at large has a responsibility to protect those people that would otherwise be negatively impacted by you having that capacity. Yeah. Um, well, I think we need to do a better job at, um, you know, reporting between agencies and mental health uh, clinics. Um, I think Illinois does it pretty well in that sense with right. the FOID system. Um, I'm not sure how, exactly how other states work with background checks and that, but um, being able to communicate between agencies with uh, with mental health care agencies uh, is pretty important. And, you know, that's the other thing, too, that I think is um, a big issue is uh, I haven't looked up the exact the exact statistics, but there's a large majority of these mass shooters. Um, one thing that a lot of them, not all, I, I can't say all because I don't know for sure, but a lot of them have in common is they're all on psychotropic drugs. Yes, they are. Yeah, you know, a lot of them are. Um, and that's another that's another completely right. rabbit hole that we could go down. But um, um, you know, I, I think there's uh, a lot of over over prescribing, um, especially to our veterans. I agree with you 100. percent The other thing that's that they're also overwhelmingly is white and male, and again, that's something that needs to be addressed. Why is it that the vast majority of the shooters are white males? As opposed to, you don't see as many women. I mean, women make up more than 50% of the population. Why isn't it that, you know, at least half of the people who are shooting are women? They're not. You don't see many women at all. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's something that needs to be addressed. What is, your, what is your answer to that in regard to, you know, do you have any sort of idea of how the, that could be something that is... Um, you know, handled in terms of, of trying to, to turn this around? Well, I don't know that you can necessarily... No, it's a very broad question, and, I, and I, you know, tough to, <laughs> tough to come up with an answer. It, but still, it, it's something that obviously it needs to be addressed. If, you're, if you go into a doctor and you've got symptoms, what the doctor does is start looking at the symptoms and then kind of checking off ways in which, you know, how, how can we make this person feel better? Yeah. If you're looking at this, you know, the mass shooting, um, the number of mass shootings increasing as a symptom, well, look at who's doing the shootings, mm -hmm. predominantly white males, predominantly young white males. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, a lot of them have been prescribed at one point or another, and a lot of times currently psychotropic drugs. A lot of them are being given these type of drugs to alter their behavior or the chemical state of their minds. Yeah. Um, a lot of bad mental health issues. Mm -hmm. um, these are things that if you're looking at trying to ameliorate the damage and, and, and stop it, hopefully stop it as much as you possibly can they need to be addressed mm -hmm. so what if anything have been i know you being somebody who's very you know pro second amendment you want to allow people to have you know whatever guns they would like to have but in order to stop other people from making the alternate argument what what can be done to you know staunch the flow of this to, of them going to these type of people yeah you know that's a very broad question and i don't i don't subscribe to the idea of you know the the 
it's no women it's all white males it's largely though if you look at it look at the statistics it is very largely white males yeah but i i, I don't i don't buy into the, the and i say that us both being white males but i don't think either of us is going to go out and run out and do this but I, I i i don't think that's an issue to pigeonhole and say you know that you know just because what we've seen recently are all white males then white males are bad it's you know you no, i'm not saying that i'm just saying but if you there has to be some sort of symptomatic there's has to be something behind it though well there's got to be something behind it but i don't think it has anything to do with their gender or their color of their skin mm-hmm. i think that's just what happened and i hear the same argument on the right too of well most of them are democrats well that has <laughs> nothing to do with anything you know it, it that's that's not let, let's focus on the crime and let's prosecute it. Right. And wrong is wrong and right is right. Right. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. Um, I'm a believer in the Second Amendment. And one thing that is 100% factual and that cannot be argued is that in the instances of mass shootings, the end of a mass shooting is always predicated on the arrival of the second gun which is why I carry everywhere I go because I am unwilling to be a victim. And if somebody comes into the Walmart where we live and starts shooting, I'm going to be the one to try to stop it. Um, we're not waiting on police. It's, it's good citizens that are armed and trained that need to be responsible as well, which is why I encourage anybody that is thinking about it to um, get yourself trained and come to my office and we'll help you with the concealed carry permit. So, anything, any other That's a, comments? Any other you're comments in regard to that? Because I don't, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a very complex issue. Yeah. In terms of that. Why do you, you know, why do you think it is predominantly, and it is, it's predominantly white males. And again, I'm not trying to, like, rag on white males. I'm not, oh, I'm self-hating white male, blah, 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 none of that kind of crap. I'm just looking at the basic statistics. Um I mean, does it seem to be um, a socioeconomic issue that sort of at, that's behind that? Does it seem to be, you know, there's some sort of, um, I mean, there have been a lot of different theories in terms of why it is that the, these shootings are predominantly carried out by this group of people. Well, it, but it's, it's all of what the context that we want to talk about it in. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of shootings... Are with pistols, not AR-15s. Right. Oh yeah, exactly. And the vast majority are crime-related too. Yeah, mm-hmm. the vast majority of shootings. How many people were killed in Chicago last week? I, I. Exactly. And what color were they? Well, in that, and it's a totally different context. See, that's exactly what I mean. Is we're talking about what makes news and not what goes on every day. The the, the epidemic in Chicago, which right. has some of the some of the most stringent gun laws in mm-hmm. the United States happens every week i think two weeks ago there were seven people killed in a day right and and i agree with you and but the but thing why are we talking about that why they have you ever watched the media in chicago neil they talk about it quite a bit <laughs> but but why are we talking about something that not that we shouldn't mm-hmm. but why are we talking about something that happened in el paso right but in the same week the same amount of people died in chicago i think the main reason why is because and you and i know this is if you go to Chicago, the people that are getting shot are within certain geographic areas. It's not as if you can go to everywhere, anywhere in Chicago and get shot. 
Sure. And I'm not saying this, you know, like, oh, you know, to rag on the poor or whatever. But the yeah. fact of the matter, the facts are the facts. If you are going to certain neighborhoods in certain areas, there are a lot more shootings in certain areas, and they tend to be socioeconomically disadvantaged. With mass shootings, there really is no predicator of that. They have happened everywhere. I mean, then I think that that's the thing. That's the difference between the two things is that you can avoid being shot in Chicago if you avoid certain neighborhoods. Your odds of being shot or being uh, a victim of gun violence in Chicago are far lower if you avoid certain places and certain areas. Whereas with mass shootings, it's unpredictable. And that's why people are freaked out by it. That's why it's a lot more difficult issue because you can't, I can't say, oh, I'm going to go to the mall and I'm going to avoid it. No, because there have been shootings in the mall. I'm going to go to church. There have been shootings in church. There have been shootings everywhere. And I think that that's what disturbs people the most is because you can't avoid it by just avoiding certain geographic areas. Right. but, But my point is, is that whether you're shot by a white person, a brown person, a black person, a yellow person, shooting a person, unless you're defending yourself, is illegal. Right. So when it's done in a church or it's done in inner city Chicago, it's both are wrong. I agree with you. It, it doesn't matter what the environment is. We shouldn't be talking about, well, you can you can not get shot if you stay out of this area but but why it's still wrong right and the one thing that all those have in common they're done with guns and so i think that we can all agree on that that they are obviously every shooting is done with a gun because it's a shooting but the thing is is what's the the question is is what do you do to make sure that people who are law-abiding citizens and have the right to, you know, bear arms should they decide to, and others who are not or who have nefarious plans for whatever weapons that they acquire are getting stricter punishments or there's some stronger means to dissuade them from getting those weapons. Yeah, and again, I I, I think it's it's, um, making sure that people that commit gun crime are going to jail and um, enforcing current laws. But you know statistics are statistics and crime is crime and wrong is wrong and right is right Mm -hmm. there's more people killed by blunt force objects than guns in the united states every year why aren't we talking about banning hammers i know it sounds cliche but if if we want to go down this logical path the cdc says guns save about three hundred thousand lives a year why don't we talk about that simply brandishing a gun a good person brandishing a gun saves lives why don't we talk about that so how do you how do you and what have you done personally given the fact that you're in a position to make a difference um more so than most people what have you done to make laws stricter to enforce the laws in a greater capacity to make sure that these types of people who have ill intent are not able to get these weapons well, again, I, I, I go back. We've we've introduced legislation um, last year. I believe it was Senator Chapin Rose that um, tried to do mandatory minimums for gun crime. Mm-hmm. Um, that bill didn't go anywhere. My bill that I introduced uh, two years ago, which would hold judges accountable, didn't go anywhere. Um, all these things that everybody I talk to, Democrat or Republican, about that, that bill in particular, about holding judges accountable, they're like, that's a great idea. Yeah. But I can't get the bill called. Why not? 
I'm not the majority party. That's ridiculous. It, it, uh, that's why I don't think there should be political parties. <laughs> because Agreed. It, it, everybody falls along party lines. Well, and that's what's so ridiculous. It's Whether it's state politics, whether it's national politics or whatever, people should just think for themselves yeah, yeah. and do what they feel is right instead of constantly going by whatever the star, whatever star-bellied sneech yes. they're part of. And I agree with you with the political parties, too, because if you didn't have political parties... Um, I'm not saying voters are dumb, but it would force voters yes. to actually research rather than looking at the letter behind people's exactly. name. Exactly. I agree 100%. Yeah. 100%, I think. And that's why, honestly, I think at one point the media had, um, I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was like fair, uh, fair and equal time laws. Mm-hmm. And the media was forced to uh, comply where if you gave time to one candidate, you had to give equal time to other candidates. Honestly, I think those laws should be brought back. There should be, I think there should be campaign finance reform. And as part of the campaign finance reform package, people should, the media should put forth more information on each of the candidates so that they, people know. So that it's not automatically, well, they're a Republican, so I'm going to vote for them. Or they're a Democrat, so I'm going to vote for them. Right. Because they might not even have your best interests at heart. Yeah. And you hear you are just voting for them because they're one or the other. It's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. So let's move on from Second Amendment thing. Let's talk about. I know, yeah, that was it. It was fun <laughs> debate. It was like a half hour debate. But um, let's talk about um, this, I think, is going to be uh, marijuana um, has been effectively legalized. It will be legalized January 1st. What do you see as uh, how do you see that impacting? Illinois, how do you see that impacting the Quad Cities and Rock Island uh, in particular? Well, I, I was uh, I was chief sponsor of that bill, and um, there was a lot of um, Republicans unhappy with me um, with that with that vote. Um, but you know, this is an issue um, much like much like guns. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm not hurting anybody, leave me alone. See, I'm the, I agree with you. I'm 100% you know, with you on this. I'm a big believer in the non-aggression principle. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm not doing any harm to you, leave me alone. Right. Um, I think, obviously, that um, um, prohibition does not work. Um, you know, I think this, this bill, as it started, was um, a train wreck. And myself and Senator Jason Barrickman were the two uh, Republicans on the negotiating team. And um, it, we actually, um, it was fun negotiating that with between the governor's office and, and the uh, uh, Senate and House Democrats. Um, because it, not that it doesn't happen, but um, it doesn't always happen. But, they, you know, they actually took, um, you know, took into consideration our concerns. And um, I think it's a good. I think it's a good bill, and I think it's a, a good policy. Um, I know there's a lot of people out there, probably some of your listeners, that disagree um, and don't believe in recreational marijuana. Um, but I think again, it's um, it's much like alcohol. Um, you want to do it in your own home. Um, you know that's up to you. Um, I, I think I might have been the only person on that negotiating team that's never done it. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's, that's just, um, that's how I feel. And I think liberty is liberty. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you can't, uh, m- much like 
you know, a, a lot of people out there that say um, your sin is worse than mine, and right. it, it's not. So do you think harder drugs should be decriminalized or made legal? Um, well, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm open to that conversation. Um, you know, it's a, it, it's a little different from a policy standpoint because we're talking about, um, and, and I had this conversation uh, pretty often during this, this whole uh, bill process, of people saying marijuana shouldn't be legal um, and then I would offer to them should we ban alcohol mm -hmm. and they say of course not well alcohol kills more than marijuana does yeah yeah by far yeah and you really can't overdose on marijuana right um, but it's very easy to overdose on alcohol so there's a bit of a double standard but um, with um, other but shouldn't there be double standards? I mean, honestly, people talk about a oh, it's a double standard, and sometimes when it's a hypocritical double standard, yes, it's a bad thing. Sure. But in terms of, there should be different standards for different things, and, oh, and you're right because there, there's a yeah. distinct, you know, yeah. there are distinct characteristics to different things. Yeah. No, absolutely. I totally agree with that with that statement. Um, you know, when it comes to you know opioids, um, I think that's um, you know, we're not talking about... Um, it's far more addictive. It's, yeah, it's far more addictive. I mean, nicotine is more addictive than cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, it, it's, you know, I, I, I think you're comparing apples and oranges when you're talking about opioids and cannabis. Right. So, although some would say that it's the same thing with handguns and machine guns, Neil, but... Yeah, but that's not in the Constitution. <laughs> um, so generally, and I agree with you on this, I think mar marijuana should have been legalized for the exact same reasons. I, yeah. The scientific research and so much sociological research has shown that in many ways it's less um, detrimental to society and less physically harmful than alcohol. Alcohol is already legal. Just control it the same way it has been in Washington and Colorado. From a financial standpoint, um, obviously it's been beneficial to other states that have done this. How do you feel that uh, impacting Illinois? And specifically, how do you feel it could have a positive impact around the Quad Cities? Well, I think from the revenue standpoint, I, I it, obviously it's going to help, but I think um, people are going to have a rude awakening if they think that this is going to solve right, anything. I don't think it's going to be um, We're looking at... Um, $300 million of revenue after the cost of oversight and implementation a year in general, uh, give or take a little bit. Um, $300 million to the average person sounds like a whole lot of money, but when you're talking about a $43 billion a year budget, um, the, the way I, I kind of put it is... Um, you know, if you have a job where you make forty-three thousand dollars a year, and you need to find another job to make extra money, um, it's like finding another job and making thirty dollars a year. Mm -hmm. um, so this is not going to be anything that's going to save the state of Illinois um, financially. Um, is three hundred million dollars a year extra good? Sure, mm -hmm. um, but it is. Um, statistically speaking, it's not going to have hardly any impact at all. Now, one of the one of the things, the topics that I got the most questions on, I went with the Second Amendment because you were talking about it already, yeah. and then marijuana came <laughs> up. So, I, honestly, I knew your position on marijuana, so I figured I'd get that out of the way because people ask me about that, and yeah. I know you're you and I are kind of on the same page in terms of that. Um, 
taxes. And I think you and I are on the same page largely because and do this. A lot of people are tired of their property taxes going up. And I know a lot of us in Rock Island especially, we're really tired of seeing our property taxes be raised. And um, how can that how can that uh, trend reverse? How can we, you know, um, start to see, you know, property taxes going down and middle class people um, start to see a little bit of some relief in terms of taxes? Well, generally speaking, property taxes are a local issue. It's a local government issue. But the reason property taxes in general, just generally speaking, are so high in the state of Illinois is because the state has not properly funded education Correct. for so long. Correct. So that leaves the local government having to raise property tax levies to pay to fill the gap. So ultimately it comes down to a state issue to a certain extent. Yep, yep, yep absolutely. Um, so I, I think the good news with property taxes and, and hopefully... Um, We'll start seeing um, property taxes go down a little bit over the next, um, you know, few years. Is um, a couple years ago we we passed legislation that completely changed the way we fund schools in our state. It's something that's been worked on in Springfield many many years before I got there, um, and we finally you know got it done um, here a couple years ago. So what changed is how we. Um, how we fund schools based on uh, poverty levels. Um, for a long time, there was a huge discrepancy between um, Chicago schools and, and downstate, as they call it. Yeah. Um, so we've changed that, and hopefully schools um, are going to start seeing a little more money, especially in, in my district. And on top of that, we've also, over the last two years, each year, we've, we've put an extra $350 million into the education funding system. Um, so that's, that's $700 million extra over the last two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully, you know, that'll start helping. But, you know, um, schools locally, the school boards, um, you know, I'm not going to tell them how to do their job, but we need to start finding um, more efficient ways to spend our money, just like the state does. Mm -hmm. Um, And and again, I don't want anybody listening to think that I'm saying, you know, school districts need to um, do this or that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying everybody in the state, um, no matter where you're at, no matter what level of government you're in, we need to start finding um, more efficient ways to, to spend our money wisely. Um, a couple of other issues in terms of education. Uh, charter schools versus public schools. Um, say I don't feel comfortable sending my son to a public school because I don't feel like he's going to get the education. There, there are very limited options. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't feel comfortable sending him to a public school. Mm-hmm. And so I end up sending him to a private school. Now, I'm being double penalized. I'm paying for school twice then. Yep. Shouldn't I get some form of relief if I'm sending my son to a public sc- to a private school and I'm spending private school tuition and yet I'm still paying a couple thousand dollars or whatever for, you know, that's going towards the local educational system. If I specifically have a child that is going to a school that I'm paying tuition for? Should I get a tuition waiver or something of that nature that comes out of the taxes that I'm otherwise sending to the state for public tuition that I'm not using? No. I shouldn't. <laughs> no. I, I, I'm, I'm a strong believer in that um, 
public dollars should go to public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, if you like, now like, that's interesting to me because a lot of Republicans don't. Yeah, that's, that's right. And yeah, and it, it's uh, it's not a it's not a uh, Republican view per se. Um, but if you want to send your kids to a private school, like we send our kids to a private school, mm-hmm. um, we we pay for it. Our taxes still go to the public schools, and mm-hmm. I think that's the way it should be as far as charter schools. Um, you know, I, I don't have a problem with charter schools as long as they are playing by the same rules. Sure. Um, what we what we see a lot of times is uh, charter schools get public dollars, but yet they don't have to follow the same rules right. as public schools. And um, <clears throat> I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I whether it's a, a not a Republican view or not, I, I, I think public dollars should go to public schools, and we need to invest in those public schools. Again, it's an interesting answer because, uh, you know, people have asked about that because I know that's a, that's a controversial topic yeah. in terms of charter schools. A lot of, you know, people are seeing the breakdown yeah. Uh, and it tends to go across party lines where Republicans tend to be more in favor of the money going towards charter schools and Democrats tend to be you know, more towards it staying that, no, this should be a public school issue. I guess I'm a Democrat on that issue. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to put labels on it. Guess, or, you yeah. just, or you're just a person who has different opinions on different things. Yeah. Um, how do you think that um, the state can help? the school system because obviously there are a lot of issues within the school system that um, some are doing fantastic others are struggling mm-hmm. um, one of the you know we there there's a lot of talk about you know maybe um, get rid of so much standardized testing kids are being standardized tested to death in yep. schools you know and I agree 100% and I'm speaking from the position of somebody who has a master's degree in education and early childhood development and I've done research on it. Standardized testing is not the most accurate predicator by any means of a child's academic capacity. Yeah. And it's odd to me that um, you have a teacher who's in class with kids every single day who is testing kids on the regular, and yet you're not trusting that teacher to make a determination of where that child is academically. You're bringing in these outside forces with standardized testing, and that's just costing the state money. That's just taking money out of the coffers. So how do we get standardized testing? I I hate to say it, but how do we get standardized testing to, to be a far less... You know, uh, you know, figure on the on the educational scene because again, it's costing way too much money. Statistics show that it isn't as accurate a barometer of of uh, production and academic achievement as it should be. And it just seems to me as if there are a lot of special interests who are behind these standardized testing. A lot of these companies that are lobbying people to get into the schools, and it's just that's what has been detrimental to the educational system over the last several decades. I totally agree with you. And and the the fix, I don't know what the fix is um, because it's a vicious cycle um, when it comes to school funding and standardized testing. Um, I totally agree with you. Standardized testing, um, we're in a situation now, it's, it's now it is more clear than ever these teachers sadly are teaching these kids how to take a test rather than teaching them how to think and learn. And, um, I say it's a vicious cycle because the standardized testing is required, um, by the state 
which is required by the federal government to get federal pass-through dollars mm-hmm. to fund education. So if you don't do them, then you don't get the federal dollars. And so it's it's this vicious cycle of how do you fix it? But we you know we need to keep funding those our schools properly, and to fund our schools properly, we need that you know that federal match money that comes right. into every state. And if we're not doing what the federal government says we need to do, then we're not getting that money. So it's it's. Um, I don't. I don't know the answer to it, but it's a it's a vicious cycle, and um, I couldn't agree more that um, we need I, as many billions of dollars that we spend on testing. Um, I would much rather see that money put in to have smaller class sizes and and more teachers. I agree with you one hundred percent because those are actually scientifically yeah. verified to help children. Yeah. The smaller the class size, the more impact it has on kids in a positive way and the more teachers there are the better it is for kids yeah. that is it, it over and over that has been verified as being a positive impact upon kids absolutely um one of the things i want to ask you about is there's now a um, a program in illinois where the kids are if and I, again i think this is a waste of taxpayer dollars quite frankly um if kids are absent for more than five days then they get put on a truant list. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, we, my son was absent more than five days, and so I had to sit down with a, a truant officer. And the truant officer and I are just sitting there, and she's like, well, this is I mean, she basically admitted this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're obviously a good father. Your kid's a good, he never gets in trouble. He gets A's and B's in school and everything else. And he gets sick. We live in the Midwest. <laughs> you know, I mean, kids get sick. Yep. There's stuff that goes around all the time. Kids are getting colds. Kids are getting the flu and everything. Really? I mean, five days? That's that's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I can certainly see kids that are chronically truant, that are in problem situations, being investigated. But this, to me, just seems like an absolute waste of taxpayer money to be going and having people... You know, uh, having uh, truant officers following up over something over a number as low as as five within the school system, especially here in the Midwest where kids do get sick quite a bit because there's a lot of, you know, flu and and colds and things of that nature that go around. I totally agree. It's not only a waste of taxpayer dollars, it's a waste of resources, Mm -hmm. it's a waste of time. Um, Any any teacher that notices that a kid is gone or notices attitude change let's use that right. as a barometer the teacher that sees that kid day in and day out they can go and say hey i think there's an issue here and then investigate further mm-hmm. but 5 days it, it's it, it's ridiculous yeah yeah well and again i think we agree on that is why aren't we trusting teachers more you know, shouldn't teachers get more respect than, than they do just in general? I think everything falls upon the teacher, yet research has shown over and over that the highest predictor of children's academic um, abilities and achievement is outside the classroom. Mm-hmm. It's if there's a parent who is available at home, if they have an, an environment at home which is nourishing them from an academic and a, a thinking standpoint, and yet we put so much on the teachers and blame the teachers in the schools so much when really it's not the teachers in the school's fault. And Maybe the teachers should get more credit and we should be taking these standardized tests and all the you know institutionalism out of the schools, and also you know all these endless uh, hoops that the teachers have to jump through. Why don't we just let them teach? I 
I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I don't know what else to add to that. I mean, <laughs> it's that's and the frustrating thing is I don't know how anybody out there, your listeners included, could disagree with any of that. It's it's totally illogical to say that a teacher wouldn't know when there was something going on with one of her students. Mm-hmm. Um, it's totally unreasonable to have a parent come in and talk to a truancy officer because the student's been gone five days through the year. It's it's ridiculous. So what are some of the things that you're most proud of during your tenure in helping the citizens of this district? And what do you still have on your to-do list that you would really like to achieve? So there's, there's a lot of things I'm proud of. Um, I think the, um, the future um, Energy Jobs Act that we passed that kept uh, the Cordova plant open was huge. Um, I was really, really proud to be not only on that negotiating team, but to to get that through and and keep those 800 800 jobs there um, in district. Um, The um, veterans, a couple veterans affairs um, bills that we've done, um, veterans that are um, disabled get property tax breaks. Um, if you're 100% disabled, you don't pay any property taxes. And um, I think that's huge, not only for keeping people in the state um, and spending their hard-earned dollars here in our local economy, but it's the right thing to do. I mean, those people, um, you know, that came back disabled from, from war. Right. Um, the country. That's the least we can do for them. Um, so yeah, there's there's um, there's a lot of things um, I've been really proud to be a part of, um, and um, yeah, hoping to do more here this next session. Um, I'm we're going to keep pushing on, um, you know, more uh, veteran uh, themed bills to to help veterans. Uh, we've we've done a few things over the last couple of years, um, but we need to do more. I don't think you can ever do enough, and. Um, yeah, things uh, I'll keep I'll keep running my my bills to try to come down harder on gun crime um, and hold judges accountable. I think that's really important. And um, overall, I think um, making sure that we're being good steward of taxpayer dollars. Um, we need to spend money more wisely. I think we need to prioritize spending much better than we do in the state of Illinois. I think um, uh, education public safety and human services, I think uh, we need to prioritize those three things, not necessarily in that order, but those three things. Um, we need to be funding those more, and whatever's left over, um, we can argue about later. But those things uh, are the priorities, and we should be doing that first and foremost. What are some of the uh, challenges, being that you represent a river community where another state is right across the river, yet we are considered pretty much one large metro area and so you're competing in terms of um trying to locate businesses on our side of the river with a completely different state and a completely different set of standards uh what are the challenges that you see in building up the illinois side and how do you overcome those yeah it's um unfortunately it's getting tougher and tougher um 
you know, uh, I, I think anybody that, that lives in the Quad Cities can agree that if you go over to the Iowa side, you have a lot more options as far as restaurants right. and stores and stuff like that. Um, so we got our work cut out for us as far as trying to not only keep businesses here, but um, attracting new businesses. And um, unfortunately, I think with this um, minimum wage law that passed here this last year um, is only going to make it tougher. So you are definitely not a How do you think the minimum wage law should be structured? How do you think, you know, um, do you think it should be a tiered system where, you know, you have a trainee wage and things of that nature? Um, do you think it should be completely abolished? Do you think that there should be no minimum wage? How do you, what do you feel about that? Well, I, I think if we're... If we're going to raise the minimum wage, I think it should be done on a federal level. That way, it's um, you know it's a level playing field across the board. Um, when we passed um, the minimum, the fifteen dollar minimum wage in Illinois, it was um, frustrating for a couple reasons. Number one, um, I, I really don't think the you know the, the the power brokers in Chicago really understand um, what it's like over here on this side, being right next to Iowa. And um, number two, we 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 when I say we, I mean uh, Republicans. We weren't really asked to come to the to the table to help negotiate it. Um, we had told them that we were willing to do some kind of tiered system where you know Chicago can be fifteen um, and the rest of the state is ten. Um, something to you know, we knew it was something that they were going to do and that they wanted to do. Um, being in the super minority, we. Um, uh, we realized that, and we were willing to negotiate, um, you know, for something a little bit better than what was passed. But um, uh, they were dead set on um, on doing fifteen dollars statewide, and um, I think uh, in the very near future we're going to start seeing the economic impact of that, and I don't think it's going to be good. Um, I know that uh, one of the divisive issues, one of the things that has been heavy on the minds of anyone in Illinois politics is the pension system mm -hmm. and uh, the issues in regard to that. Uh, what, if any, do you see as um, any sort of fix or to move things in a positive direction in regard to that? And also, um, has there been any uh, addressing of, like double dipping in pensions and people, you know, retiring from one job retiring in air quotes from one job at like age 50 mm -hmm. and then going and getting another state job and then retiring from that job at 65 right. and then they get two pensions which right. to, which i know people have done that and it seems as if that's a disingenuous means to circumnavigate the rules and to get two pensions from the state system right we've um we've actually passed legislation in the last um four years that have, have cut out a lot of the uh, a lot of that uh, so people can't do that anymore but you, I mean, you still can um, retire from one, and if you put in the right amount of time to collect from another one, um, you know, you can certainly still do that. Um, whether it's right or wrong, um, it, it's still a contract. Uh, I, I refused the legislative pension and health care benefits when I was elected. I think it's ridiculous that, um, you know, I can serve a couple terms and get the same pension that I have to work 30 years for at the fire department. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I've always been and always will be a proponent of getting rid of um, legislative pensions and health care benefits. Um, pay us for our time. I understand that. Um, but, um, you know, getting the Cadillac pension and Cadillac health care plans that state legislators um, can get unless they refuse it is... Um, 
it's it's just not it's not right especially when you can get it after you know five eight years what other topics do you think are um particularly uh impactful that need to be addressed within the next couple of years for the state and for our district well i think we're gonna we're gonna continue to keep hearing about taxes in general Mm -hmm. um you know at some point i'm not and i'm not saying that i'm absolutely right i think there's um you know negotiations are good but we have to we have to change um you know the way we we tax from income tax to property tax um we have to somebody has to finally realize that we need a larger tax base not necessarily a larger tax rate um if you look at um states around the nation that are not in financial trouble um they most of them tax lower um and they have a larger tax base and along with that comes responsible spending and um you know reforms here and there um and that's those are tough conversations to have and i don't have the answers to all of them but i think we need to start discussing them more and um we need to have uh, a conversation about what we can cut and what's reasonable and what's not reasonable when you first ran, um, one of the things you talked about is um, that you didn't like the fact that there were career politicians. Mm-hmm. Are you going to run again? And what, <laughs> what's your cap? I mean, I know a lot of people, a lot of politicians talk about that. Oh, we don't need any career politicians. And then 20 years, they're still, yeah. you know, and, and so they go completely against what they said to begin with. Where is your cap? I mean, are you going to run again? And, or, and if you do, then when are you going to stop? When are you going to say, you know what? That's it. Somebody else should come in. There should be new ideas. Exactly like you said when you first ran. Yep. There should be new ideas. There should be new people coming in. So for you, what's the limit? Um, I, I don't I don't know. Um, I don't know if I'm going to run again. I don't know that I will run again. I'm not sure. Um, but the definition of career politician versus citizen legislator is not necessarily time. It's um, what they do and what they bring to the table. Um, Again, um, I cut out my career in the legislature the the minute I refused the pension. Um, you know, I'm not in this for the money. Sure, of course, it'd be nice to have two pensions uh, when I retire, and um, but I would rather um, be able to look at myself in the mirror in the morning. Um, again, it all comes back to what we were talking about earlier: right is right and wrong is wrong. And um, you know, I'll. Uh, I'm I'm still going over and praying about what the next steps are. Um, I don't know what that looks like yet, but um, uh, while I'm here, I'll I'll continue to um, to do what we have been doing and uh, having the best constituent service in the state of Illinois. Sounds good, Neil. Anything else that you'd like to add before we sign off? No, I really appreciate uh, you having me on the show. And anytime you want me to come back, I'm uh, I'm more than willing. And like I said, I'd, anybody that wants to reach out to our office questions comments concerns um senator neil anderson at gmail.com or our office number is uh, 309-736-7084 i'm always willing to have a conversation 
Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. Appreciate it. Senator Neil Anderson, um, Sean Leary, this was QC Uncut, your source for uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers. Once again, thank you very much to our guest, uh, Neil Anderson, state senator for the 36th district, which does include our Quad Cities. And thanks a lot for listening to QC Uncut on QuadCities.com. I'm Sean Leary. Have a great day.